Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Youthful Work State of Mind podcast, the podcast for anybody interested or involved with Christian youth work. Joining me for every episode is the youth advisor for Blackburn Diocese, Ben. How are you doing? Hey, mate, you all right? Yeah, good. Six episodes. You excited? I am. This is, this is yeah, I, I'm actually really excited because I love, I love music, I love worship. We get to talk about it today. What what more could you want in your day? Every week, uh, we have some guests on to talk about different aspects of youth ministry and to have a little bit of fun along the way. Um, today, we are going to be delving into the topic of worship. Uh, and as ever, we have some fantastic people uh, to talk it through with uh, Ben and myself. Um, so, uh, guest number one, please introduce yourself. Hello, hello. I'm Joe Boyce from CJR Music, based in the sunny Midlands. Although it's not that sunny at the moment, I have to be honest about that. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I uh, founded CJR Music with uh, Mike Stanley back in. I won't say the year; it'll age me. But I've been doing this for a long time, particularly in the liturgical tradition. So it's great to be part of this conversation. Brilliant. And then random stance. I completely forgot to introduce this. Coldplay or you too. Ooh, ooh, now that's a good one, isn't it? I'm going to have to say at the moment that I'm going to lean towards Coldplay. And, and I'll tell you why, because I've been listening to them a lot when I've been out on my walks, especially now as that I've got a dog and I have to do this nice long dog walk every day. And I find that if I need to pick my spirits up a little bit, there's nothing quite like a Coldplay four chord riff at walking pace. <laughs> <laughs> and they seem to have mastered that. So, uh, so yeah, it's just just something that you can just enjoy the rhythm and the beat. They've they've mastered the the, the catchy riff. So I'm going to go with Coldplay for the moment. Hi, I'm John Robinson. I'm the director of music at Blackburn Cathedral, and I guess I've lived my life in cathedrals in one way or another, with a brief stint in America as well. Went on for nearly a decade, in fact, but um, was a choir boy myself back in the 1990s I guess and um, moved around various cathedrals since then and then went and conducted choirs in America and then came back last year to Blackburn and just absolutely love interacting with children and um, bringing them into the church and doing music with them and all the inspiration that brings to me as well it's just fantastic so love my job. Nice and Coldplay or you too? <laughs> Um, so, um, not no controversy here at all. Definitely Coldplay, as well, <laughs> and um, also just think really catchy tunes are really catchy, really memorable. Love them, and um, uh, also haven't really heard all that much YouTube. Being completely honest, but wow, do so it's really sad. But for some reason, whatever reason, have heard more Coldplay and like it. Ben, what about you? Me, I. This is this is the problem. Growing up, they were two of the bands I mostly listened to. I have to confess, though, I probably edged towards you two a little bit more, and I think it's probably because I got into their back catalogue in my teens and slowly. So all that you can't leave behind landed was that sort of that two two thousand ish. Yeah, um, right landed on. sort of sort of my late-ish teens, and then me and my brother just back catalogued the lot and really got into it. Into, into their music and to the point that um, I think my brother still owns all of the live DVDs they've ever done. 
Um, oh. So so we used to kind of watch those. That was one of the regular things. So there's quite a history to that. Um, and but I have to confess, like it's probably yeah, early Coldplay was a big thing for me as well. So mm-hmm. I'm torn, but I probably have to edge you too, just because of you know all you can't leave behind, Joshua Tree and Acton Baby. That's the big three, isn't it? That's the, the big three. That's the big three. <laughs> so you've got to love those. You've got to love them. Yeah. I, if, if you'd asked me, like, kind of when I was younger, I would have gone U2 all the way. Um, I just, I liked U2 in the 2000s. That's when I really started getting into, into music. Now, I've swung more Coldplay with some of their recent stuff. So I, th- I think I appreciate more what Coldplay do now than what they did previously. And I, I appreciated you two more early on than what they're putting out now. So I'm kind of on the fence a little bit, but. Very different. <laughs> Um, so we're going to start the episode this week with um, Bible characters as it's a feature where we start with a category and then we suggest characters from the Bible or perhaps if you've been a bit spicy, maybe even some famous Christians um, who would fit into that category. Um, today we are suggesting Bible characters as bands or music groups or people connected with music in some way it's widening but, how is it yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. Yeah. Try to make this as broad as possible so it's not awful uh, <laughs> who wants to jump in first with their suggestion i don't know i feel i feel like this is it feels slightly heretical i don't mind pushing the boat out and seeing which one of us gets struck by lightning first um so i'm gonna i'm gonna offer up <clears throat> peter and paul as bros <laughs> now a lot of people listening probably haven't heard of bros but they're a brother a brother pop duo i think from the 90s aren't they they've tried to make a comeback but they haven't quite made it and they they seem to have this kind of love-hate relationship they're twins as well i think and i, I think peter and paul are quite similar like that you know they've 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 got a bit of a uh, uh, there's a kind of quiet antagonism between them, I think, that we kind of read between the lines in scripture. And yet they're, they're kind of seen as the evangelistic fathers of the church, if you like. So they're a double act, even though they don't seem to get on that well. So that, that I'm going to go with that. <laughs> nice. Did I, think, did I overthink that? <laughs> nice. That's led me to another one. But there you You've go. qualified it well. I, I get it. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. It's good. Apologies to anyone's listening who's never heard of Bros. Right. I think I might have aged myself with that one. <laughs> well, they're certainly going to go and check them out now. Yeah. I went I went a similar vibe. I went Oasis, but mainly the Gallagher brothers as Cain uh, and Abel. thought that yeah, was horribly yeah. there, right? Yeah. It's just there. Mm. Just, I'm, I'm surprised one of them hasn't killed the other yet. So. Yes. Good call. If you thought that was um, obscure, I, I think I'm going to go really weird here and go into the 19th century, into the Wesley family, who um, 
a very a very complicated group who included the brilliant hymn writer Charles Wesley, who wrote Heart of Herald Angels Sing and stuff like that, and John Wesley, who was off on tour all the time and ultimately um, sort of founded Methodism. But they seem a lot to me, if you look further down the family to more recent times, um, to be very quite a kind of complicated family. So I was thinking along the lines of um, the Isaac's family with Jacob and Esau and all those complicated shenanigans that go on there and the inheritance and all those sorts of things. And the, I think the Wesley family ultimately ending up with Samuel Sebastian Wesley, who wrote loads of famous hymns and church music, have a similar complexity to them, to that Bible story there. And I suppose the other, the other kind of um, big figure church history musician I was thinking of was Bach and the way that he's often referred to as the fifth evangelist. So I suppose you could think of him as like the fourth in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Again, maybe that's a bit heretical, but hopefully somebody's <laughs> on, somebody here is on Heresy Watch to get rid of all of that for us before we go out. But um, the, yeah, so there's a, there's a sense, especially in, um, I think, in the Lutheran church and in also Pope Benedict referred to him as the fifth evangelist at one point. So right across the Christian spectrum, there's a real revere and what's, what's the word, regard for, Bach's church music and the kind of influence he's had on the faith as well. Like it. Mine nice. are not as highbrow as that. I have That's to really <laughs> feel like we've gone, we've gone like to a whole other level with this. <laughs> I had, I've, I've got a couple more to throw in. I don't know if Dave's got any, but I went with, I went, basically, you can tell where I've gone with this. I went with the Beatles as the four apostles, but you could substitute that for yeah. any four piece. Any four piece. Yeah, I was trying to think about the four piece. <laughs> there you go, you two. Technically, mm -hmm. Coldplay, we've been there already. You could even go McFly if you were really desperate. We could take this to many places if we wish mm -hmm. to. Um, but basically, any four-piece band within reason. So there you go. Um, I also had Rag and Bone Man as John the Baptist. Thought that was nice. Cool. Oh. <laughs> that was a good, good image to kind of like it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. he's, only a, he's only human after all. Um, sorry, that was it. That was it. That was it. Lyric Nick. Um, I feel I feel the need to throw in a female group if I may. Go for it. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm clutching at straws a little bit, but I'm going to go uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes, one of my mum's favourite bands. And I'm going to say that um, it's Mary, the mother of Jesus, with Mary Magdalene and Martha and Mary, the sisters, as the, the, the BVs. Nice. <laughs> it's a great image. In fact, surely. Um, this is this is going to sound heretical. Just be really mix of it, but um, okay. uh, Mary Madonna. Surely there's a link there. Surely there's a link. Okay, yeah. Dodgy, yeah. The dodgy a, a link. Slightly dodgy link. Definitely a dodgy link. <laughs> but I see, I see what you've done. You see there, what yes. I've done there. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's not pretty, but it's 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 vaguely there. Feel the need uh, to search out my rosary round about now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. That was, I mean, that is, that is close to the line, to be fair. Um, I do apologise. We can edit that out. No, 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 keep it. It's good, it's good, it's funny. I'll tell you what, if this podcast ever gets merchandise, that'll be one of the uh, the, the phrases that gets put on a T-shirt. Just go and find my rosary. <laughs> So we've reached the part of the podcast where we're going to delve into this week's topic, which is how to help young people engage in worship. 
So uh, let's start, start off our discussion with this question. Worship is seen uh, as both the lifestyle of a church community as well as specific acts within church life. How can we best engage young people in both aspects of worship, worship as life and worship as an act? That's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> well, so we'd start off with a biggie. Start off with oh, a biggie. Just an easy one to start off with, yeah. The work that I do now kind of grew out of youth work. I took a gap year after my degree thinking I was just trying to discern what I was going to be doing in life. And that ended up being four years at a residential youth retreat centre. And um, in the Catholic tradition, everything revolves around our Eucharistic celebrations. And so my work there really was how to engage young people in that. And the answer often was music and contemporary music that would fit that liturgical structure that we have for our celebrations of the Mass. And the work that I do now has its roots in that, in that trying to bridge that gap between a contemporary experience for our young people and the liturgical tradition of the church. And even after all these years, it's, it's still a challenge. And um, I, I think what tends to happen, especially in, in that traditional approach to worship, is that we hang on so much to the tradition that we forget that every generation wants to bring something of themselves to it. Mm. And so I think one of the first things that we need to do a little bit more artfully is allow each generation to bring something of themselves to what is uh, we've always done it this way, and every tradition has that. Whether it's liturgical or not, there's always a sense of this is how we do it. Um, and, and to just be willing to let go of that a little bit and allow each generation to bring something of themselves to it. This is how we do it, but this is how we're going to try and do it in this age. Mm. And to just, just be willing to let go a little bit more, I think. Mm. A lot of the children that come to the cathedral choirs here are coming to church for the first time so they've not been part of the previous tradition most of the time and they come and it's the first time they're seeing a community of people like that and a building like that and music like that and it's incredibly I think eye-opening for them and what's really interesting to me I think is the relationship between those I know for the boys they're younger so they're there for maybe five years before their voices break and then they move into our youth choir and the girls are a little bit older. But each of those groups, um, the relationship between the singing that they do and what they then do after that and whether they become part of the community and the worshipping life of the cathedral and the congregation or whether their families do and all those sorts of questions. And I think it's really interesting that when you go round our congregation, you often, in fact, in fact, most of the time, they'll say that they're there because at one point they had a child or grandchild or sibling even in the cathedral choir and they stayed, they came to services initially because of the music, completely not because of a religious approach initially, but then something stuck with them and that's become a, a real part of their life. So that to me is a really interesting and how we how we encourage people to become part of the whole community and not just a kind of musical appendage to what's going on. To me, it's part of it's partly to do with emotional connection to the music. That if I'm doing my job right, then I'm helping those children to become emotionally connected to the text that they're singing. And even if they don't come from a faith background at all, initially to model those emotions is actually just part of the work of being a chorister. I think for anybody, whether they're an adult or a child, and then finding the overlap between having modelled those emotions and then starting to think, well, actually, yeah, I connect with these texts in that kind of way. 
And then we find that there's hopefully over time a kind of authentic becoming part of the community move that happens there. But it's it's really, I mean, it's really difficult because of course it cuts the other way too. And you do get children who love it and they sing it and they say, well, I don't really want to continue with this afterwards. And they go off and do other things. We never see them again. So it is always a case of, you know, I guess, the seed landing in different places in different ways. Just, just as a kind of question for Annette, and I'm intrigued actually more than anything. Do you deliberately unpack what young people are singing? Do you kind of go through and go, do you know what you're singing about? Is that something that you do as part of all the time? Yeah. yeah, absolutely essential because I think you can't, I think that the primacy of the text is really important that, you know, however much I love music, I'm aware that the music's there to serve the, um, and to, so in some ways to go beyond the, what the text says emotionally. Um, and so to, for them to be able to understand that, especially if it's in a different language, yeah, that's, that's really obviously completely essential. But even just if it's a theological concepts and, and things that they won't have encountered in normal life, then yeah, I think it's imperative that they at least try and understand the mood of what we're doing. And, and as they get older, because they all understand in different ways. And if they're in year, year nine, um, nine, they're going to understand completely differently to year three. So yeah, I mean, we have, try and have different ways of reaching different age groups. It's interesting, isn't it? I think that this external attachment to either the style of music or the, the involvement with a music and group can happen in any tradition and any style. You know, you hear all the time of really gifted musicians in worship bands who, when they're not in the band or when they're not on the stage, that you can tell that they're, they're kind of struggling a little bit in their discipleship journey. And I think it's really difficult to take the relationship with Christ and build that as distinct from this person has a musical gift in and they're great in the band or they're great on the stage or they really like this style of music, be it contemporary or traditional. And sometimes there's a little bit of a gap between the two. And I think there is, it's easy to make assumptions that if a person's involved in the musical life of worship, that somehow the discipleship life is kind of sorting itself out in the background. And that's, yeah, I think it's a risky assumption to make. I think if we want fully formed disciples who are really living a life of worship in, in the way that we're kind of talking about in this discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a really multifaceted kind of issue, really. Completely agree. I have a, a background in leading sung worship in, in different contexts, mostly contemporary, but something that stuck with me as I was learning this and kind of being introduced to leading other people in sung worship was that to lead people in worship first, you must be a worshipper and have that lifestyle of worship that comes out as you're singing and, and leading other people. Is that something that you find is helpful to connect the two ways of looking at worship together? I think so. I mean, I think it's very difficult to lead others in something that you're not doing yourself. But I think there's more to it than, especially when we use this language of, of song worship and we're speaking about the person who's leading the, the song in the context of a communal act of worship. I think what the, certainly in the, in the Catholic tradition, those who are more traditionalists and would be more inclined to choirs and organs and maybe even Latin and chant, there's an argument that more contemporary styles are overly emotive and that, that we can manipulate the emotions a little bit and that it's not true worship. Some of our English theologians like Newman and uh, oratorians would be of that view that in its purest sense, it doesn't really call to the emotions. 
I'm not very good at articulating that perspective because it's not my own. <laughs> Um, but I think that sometimes there is that danger that a worship experience, as we call it, can be so emotive that we mistake that for a genuine encounter. I don't think that we always discern with our young people a real journey into getting to know Christ that's not necessarily connected to whether they liked the music or not. And I think if we always attach it to the music, which we often do, we end up with a slightly... Um, shallow, I guess, experience. It's only the icing and it can help bring your attention to the moment of encounter. But if you like the only the icing, then you never really get to the depth. And I think that's what happens to a lot of our young people. We don't allow them to have deep enough roots, broad enough experience, like you were talking about, Ben, of different styles. And we just get so attached to this one way of doing it and that heightened emotional sensation that it can give us. And I think we mistake it for the whole cake. I've mixed so many metaphors in there. <laughs> I don't know if I've made any sense at all. Partly, partly because I'm hungry now. Yeah. <laughs> promise I'll eat the cake with the icing. It seems to be about perspective in some ways, just making, I mean, Ben, I think you mentioned earlier, you know, keeping Christ at the forefront, really, of what we're doing with music and, and being aware why we're doing it and that sort of thing. And it's helpful, to, I think, to think that actually with music, it's never perfect. It's, a, it's something we're doing as humans as an offering. We're doing the best we can. But the idea of quality or whatever is quite an interesting question in itself, let alone different styles. I mean, they're all styles we've been given by God, to, you know, to be helpful to us and to be offered as worship. But beyond that, it's quite hard to start talking about, well, okay, you know, you made a mistake or something, but does that somehow invalidate the act of worship? I mean, it gets ridiculous, doesn't it, if you lose perspective on what we're doing with, with worship? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Contemporary worship has gone the way of big bands and lights and fantastic production, and it's wonderful, and I love it. And, you know, I love putting on YouTube and checking out all these great performances and the new music that comes through. But when when I'm in my little parish church with my tiny little music group of three members and um, a few singers, really, if, if they can hold the melody, it, we're fortunate. <laughs> And yet something still very, very special happens in that context. And nobody wants to watch it on YouTube or listen to the recorded version of it. But it's still very, very beautiful because the heart for worship when we gather and the heart to serve that community at prayer is genuine. And I think that our young people are attracted to authenticity. They can be distracted by the lights and the you know, almost that kind of celebrity approach to, to it, I think. But when they know real authenticity when they see it. And I think that's what we have to strive for. And that's what those of us who lead have to strive for. It's, it's not about studio album perfection. It's about bringing what gifts you have, you know, you, uh, and let's join together and worship. Absolutely. I think that's really well put. And that requires a certain type of humility that kind of, um, you know, flies in the face of, of that culture where you want everything to be getting hundreds of hits on YouTube all the time. I often use the analogy of the happy birthday ritual because obviously in a liturgical tradition, you've got this form and formula for doing things. And um, it seems kind of 
unique to our tradition, but actually it's very everyday. And we've got so many little human rituals that have form and formula. And the happy birthday ritual is a great example of it from the lighting of the candles in secret somewhere to the processing of the cake, to the singing of the ritual song for the moment, uh, the cutting of the cake. You know, none of us have ever seen this written down, but we know exactly how it works. And we know how to bring our children into the pattern of this ritual in a way that's age appropriate as they grow. And they become part of the pattern of the ritual and the song because they're part of the community that's celebrating that moment of someone's birthday together. And I think we need to apply the same to the way we worship collectively, that it is about understanding the moment, why we gather for this moment, why this piece of music is for this moment, <laughs> and how we can gradually, as they grow in understanding, give our young people more and more responsibility for part of the pattern. So no one would give a two-year-old a, a cake with lit candles on it, but they might let them put their hands under it while an adult holds it. I think if we live a life of worship authentically and encourage our young people to come alongside us as we do things, then they just become part of the life of worship and community and prayer. We've touched on helping young people to experience different styles to get kind of like a, a rounded picture of, of what it is to worship God in, say, a contemporary setting and a more liturgical setting. How can we give those opportunities? Because it strikes me like taking someone out of a of one way of doing something and and just kind of putting them into a completely different context would be such a shock. It would have been for me if, uh, as, a, as a young person. So how can we engage young people with different styles and expressions of Christianity but do it in a way that they'll understand? I think there's a practical issue here, which is that it is quite difficult to, unless you're going to have a partnership, and so I think that is the answer probably, to form partnerships between churches of different styles, different denominations, and um, then share services together in, in the worshipping style of the, the church in question is a practical approach. Partly because with children, it's very difficult to, depending on the age, of course, often parents are the prime movers in bringing them to different places. So that's something certainly that I, my previous job in America, we did partner with another church and shared some liturgies together and had some different perspectives from that kind of angle. I suppose as a cathedral, we get different styles coming through. Of course, we get diocesan events where we're more likely to be doing styles that are more familiar to people who are coming from parishes. And then we have other events like Choral Evensong that happens all the time, which are more likely to be a kind of cathedral formal style worship. But it is challenging, as you say, yeah open to any ideas on that. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Uh, certainly in my work, and one of the reasons we ended up doing the Anglican youth pilgrimage, despite coming from a, a Roman Catholic background, is that there are very few that are willing to risk embracing both ends of the spectrum of styles. <laughs> Obviously, I'm limited by the fact that I'm a guitarist and not a keyboard player, and there are certain styles that are better suited to a keyboard instrument, the organ or piano. But I've tried to be as broad in repertoire as possible. And I'm as comfortable with our seven-piece band in a one million watt PA leading a half-hour worship set of well-known contemporary worship songs as I am singing, you know, a Latin motet or um, something more choral or intoning a, a psalm as the responsorial psalm accompanying that with the guitar. And for me, I feel that as a Catholic worship leader, that that breadth 
of musical vocabulary is important within, obviously, the limitations of my own skill and abilities. And I think that whatever tradition we come from, it's healthy to have the discipline of broadening our own musical horizons and from time to time introducing something that might not be plumb in the middle of our most comfortable <laughs> preferential musical style, but might lean a little bit to the more traditional or lean a little bit more to the contemporary, depending on where we are. And I just believe in borrowing the best of all styles, really. What examples have you seen of young people engaging really well with worship in whatever context? You mentioned, Ben, about your work with young people in schools and how, you know, like singing can be kind of a challenging thing. And that's certainly that's been my experience over the years. And I made a point really of honing the skill of getting young people from the sound of silence to full voice. But, you know, it, it, I, I had to dig deep to do that and use every trick in the book. And, and certainly one of the things I found with young people is that shorter is better. And, and like call and response time things, because mm -hmm. they'd sing that once one phrase back to you and before they realised they joined in. <laughs> and so there wasn't always a place in my work with young people for big hymn texts. It was often, you sing this very short refrain and I'll sing the verses or that sort of thing. And that's how I was able to get a bit of engagement and then build on that. So short, simple choruses with very easy grey whistle test type melodies is really what works best, especially with a large group of largely unchurched young people, I think, from a practical point of view. Yeah. I, I have to, I, we, used to, we used to run, uh, I probably call loads of different things in different places, but we used to call them spirituality days in the school I was at. And one of the sessions with the year seven, very similar to what Joe said, like quite short refrain song, was get them to rewrite the lyrics for their own kind of experience or their own expression. And like, you get classic kind of year seven lads, like, you know, they'd all write about their favourite football team. You're just like, we're thanking God for Man United. It's like, this is the weirdest thing. Um, <laughs> but then you get others that start thinking and they think deep. And, mm. and, and there was always something of like engaging with what you're singing. And yes, the melody is really simple and that always helped. But actually it was like, okay, like we get what this is about now. We get, and we understand this. And I, and I think there was just something really, there's something very beautiful in that kind of light bulb on pin drop moment where they're like, oh, this is what this is about. And this isn't just nice and this isn't just music, but this is this is worshipping God. This is thanking God for something. This is going after something very different. And I think that's, yeah, that's been, yeah, my experience in school has always been short but sweet. And but also get but get the engagement with what the words are, which I think we've all said is is really vital and um, especially when it's a non-faith context as well. Like how do we, what are we actually singing here? So. A serious challenge for me is that there's a kind of perception that cathedral choirs make a nice sound and that, you know, you're absolutely right, that you can, that can then dislocate itself from the meaning of the text and you end up with something that isn't really engaging with the text at all. It's just this sound. And so trying to wed, wed the two together properly is, is really tough, yeah. So I have to confess, like I'm a big summer festival, youth festival kind of goer. My youth groups have always connected with that. And there is something about the thought of gathering with huge amounts of other people their age, actually connecting people. And when, you, when that, your voices rise together, actually there's something in that. And my experience is kind of more Soul Survivor, Spring Harvest, that kind of end of things. But equally, I know that places like Walsingham and the youth pilgrimage at, at Walsingham, the angry one there, 
there's a similarity to that in the sense that, and I realise that there's a lot of work goes into that. There's a lot of different kind of, from a musical perspective, a different styling to that maybe that there would be um, and different style to what they might be used to at, back at home, but but equally familiar in, in 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 terms of what they what they're doing. But but I think there's there's something around allowing young people to connect with other people. Like there is when we take them off to bigger youth groups or those partnership moments with other churches that actually we're not the only people be, that believe this. And actually, this gives me a freedom and an expression, an opportunity to express myself. But then when we get back to our own churches, they all go. And you can't see my facial expression, but everyone laughed and they knew what I meant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there is, and, and I think there is something about those moments where you can gather, even if it's a couple of hundred or a thousand, or, but those moments are just collective. This is us together. And this is us as young people that know who Jesus is and we're going we're gonna to praise him together. And I think there is something in that that really excites me. And I, yeah, and I think that's a really good place. But equally, I've seen, seen some quieter, more contemplative spaces of worship where young people just totally go, okay, this is me. And I'm, a, and I'm, allowed, to, I'm allowed to be me and I don't have to sing and I can sing and I can just be and I can listen and absorb it. That hugely engage, engage them in that. But equally, it's about the young people that it, the young people themselves and their choice to engage um, a lot of the time. In the past couple of years, I've not been kind of traveling with work as much. I had a big birthday a couple of years ago and decided that I was going to start cutting down the miles a little bit. So I've been able to, to kind of get a little bit more actively involved in my local parish. And one of the things that's come to the fore again for me is this tension between the event experience which is, I think, is an important part of engaging young people and letting them know that there are more of them out there and the local community experience. And, and you just kind of referenced that, Ben. And I really want to see us be better in our little local churches of engaging, even if it's just the two or three young people that are at that worship event. Obviously, in the Catholic tradition and, and, and in the Anglican tradition as well, we have this thing of church schools and I think we've kind of, rightly or wrongly, abdicated a little bit too much of the church community experience to our schools and neglected to nurture young people as part of the wider congregation. They're not an adjunct to, they're not optional extras that will be dealt with at school until they're old enough to join fully with what we're doing here. They're part of what we do. And I think that we need to be more proactive in bringing them along with us in every moment, not just in the moments that we build as the youth events. And I think that will help us a little bit in terms of the exodus that we, we, we sense a little bit of young people. It's not that they're not interested in a relationship with Christ. I think it's that they sense that their community is not interested in the way they would like to make that journey. Go make your journey somewhere else. And when you're old enough and you know Christ, come back. We've got a place for you in the pew. And I don't think that's a helpful approach. I would totally agree and pick up on both that sense that young people need to feel part of the whole community, not just sort of sectioned off. And also the bigger festival thing in, in that we had last year a diocesan choirs festival here for the first time, which brought parishes into a big event in the cathedral. And I think there was definitely a sense that there were young people there who suddenly felt part of something much bigger in a certain way as well as, of course, the primacy of what they do in the parish is so is so important, isn't it? But the fact that we're adults there singing all the other parts and that it was a, an adult festival in a sense, but that we needed those children. It wasn't that they were kind of 
there to be pretty or something. It was there, they were there to do a job to sing the worship. And I think that's really important that they feel valued as really, you know, actually part of what's going on all the time. Have there been any resources that you've seen that you've used or perhaps maybe even you've created that someone in, who's listening uh, could use to help equip their context? We actually have, but it's um, as we finished creating these resources, though it's very, very much that in mind, really, the pandemic struck. So we were on the point of trying to publish them. I think Bishop Philip actually might have some ideas about this because he was kind of keen that we ought to make them available as a resource to parishes as well that had a faith formation component and a music component that were kind of integrated to some extent. So I think that's something that we're definitely thinking we should be doing and working on. But it's I think it's not quite finished yet, but definitely watch this space. I don't have anything to offer <laughs> on the resources front. I mean, I've used lots of different resources of music and, and approaches over the years. And I've kind of just come down to the belief that the resource is only part of the issue. In the end, it's it's the willingness to just be open to a breadth, sometimes from places you didn't expect, and to lean into relationship, really, with our young people. I think in the end, I was able to get young people to sing in schools when they had when it started off with the sound of silence, because we kind of got to know each other, and they got to know my heart for them, and they began to trust me. And they trusted me with their song. And in the end, that's more important than which song it is. So we're nearing the end of our podcast, but before we go, uh, we have our weekly challenge feature for our guests to take part in called Theology in 60 Seconds. Uh, the rules are very simple. Each guest has uh, 60 seconds to explain an aspect of Christian faith or a Christianese term because, you know, us Christians, we love our long, complicated words, don't we? But they have to do it in only 60 seconds. And to help them along the way, we're going to have a ticking timer uh, sound effect playing in the background. Ben it has the hardest job of all. Uh, he's on hand to uh, judge each one based on sticking to the time. Um, so any space uh, before or after 60 seconds may or may not be penalised, depending on how kind Ben is feeling, I guess, and then how well each of our guests explain the term. This week, we would like our guests to explain the joy of the Lord. It's a phrase that gets used almost on a, a weekly occurrence in different churches across the world, I guess, the joy of the Lord. So John has agreed to go first he looks so happy about this <laughs> i feel like he's googling it at the moment <laughs> google the joy of the lord wikipedia here we go <laughs> i'm sure whatever it is that you've come up with and prepared will be absolutely fantastic so um don't worry about it too much he's always very kind are you ready I'm ready, as ready as I'll ever be. As ready as I'll ever be. Yeah, that's definitely the the response we get most. <laughs> okay, your time starts in three, two, one, go. I reckon the joy of the Lord is the happiness that comes from authentically worshipping God. The prospect of happiness is such a great motivator, and I think God knew that when he created us and revealed himself to us through the Bible and the church. 
The word gospel means good news or good story. And so the overriding emotional response to the Christian message and teaching should be one of joy, the joy of the Lord. Originally, God made us to be fundamentally happy because his creation was good. Belief in the essential goodness of God's creation and celebrating that with others also brings the joy of the Lord. There are plenty of good moves afoot in the secular world as well with environmentalism and all sorts of other good things that chime with a love of God's creation, many of which should bring us joy. The joy of the Lord comes every time we praise God through singing and indeed every time we are in good relationship with God, perhaps through works of charity to others or acts of penance or perhaps undertaking a pilgrimage or wedding or any of those sacramental... Carry on. Or usually just through worshipping with our fellow Christians. Finding God in all our neighbours is a fundamental source of the joy in the Lord. Okay, not too far over. <laughs> if you take the pause out of it, the, the kind of the, the sheer panic of, oh no, I've got over time. Uh, <laughs> but not, not too far over time. Was, it was the best eye lift I've seen that just kind of went, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just like, what does that, oh, what do it, oh. That was, that was longer than I thought. That's <laughs> real. I'm just impressed with the preparation. I'm just going to be wigging. That was a very comprehensive. <laughs> that was comprehensive. Very comprehensive. Ah, Loved very. it. Okay, uh, Joe, you are uh, last to go, but simpl- uh, definitely not least. Um, I, I feel a little bit underprepared, if I'm honest, but okay. um, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm ready. Cool. Right. Well, take your time. Uh, take it easy. And uh, uh, your time uh, starts in three two one go oh the joy of the lord is my strength it's often quoted from nehemiah and i think it means that the um it's that kind of mystical sense of hope and certainty even in the midst of sorrow i don't think joy necessarily means the absence of pain or sorrow but i think it means that we can trust that in god all shall be well all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well, as Julian of Norwich would say. Um, you know, to quote the Psalms as well, at night there are tears, but joy comes with the morning. It's that belief that in God, all that we are made for will come to perfection. And no matter what we're going through right now, no matter how tough it is, painful it is, heartbreaking it is, that in him is our healing and our hope. And it's not that we smile through gritted teeth through it all. It's just that we trust. We lean into him and we know that he will carry us. That was like the Fantastic. And I'm done there. <laughs> so for those who didn't see, which is everybody um, who was not in this, Joe went to say as something else. And then the timer stopped. Um, so that was a nice, timely. It was a great point to stop as well. It was a great <laughs> point to stop. Here you go. Yeah. What next? <laughs> oh, well, Nothing. That's I've okay. done it. I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, uh, both really, really good explanations. Both really very different, um, but really good. I do not envy you, Ben. Oh, I hate. The, the, I don't. Why do we have to have a winner? <laughs> Why do we always have winners and things? It's so wrong. Oh, I didn't realise it was going to be judged. Well, yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't make it explicit, and then he pulls out the bag <laughs> at the end of it, and everyone goes, "All oh, right, 
Um, <laughs> it's a shame this is an audio podcast because you could just hold up a paddle with a score on it. <laughs> Even then, I just I'd feel like today, genuinely, you both went so, such different angles with it. But both put so beautifully. I am declaring today a draw. I'm not. I'm not even. Wow. I'm not even because I can't. I, and Dave's going to tell me that I'm naughty for doing that. I'm, <laughs> I'm declaring today the king of diplomacy. Yeah, well, I put you in charge of it then. So if yeah, you're declaring I'm allowed, a draw. I'm allowed to do that. So it's good. Yeah. I'm, I, 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 I I can't well. draw a draw between the two. So yeah, it's a nice. draw. It's a draw. Okay. Very well done. <laughs> <laughs> I, I might add that I felt I felt personal joy hearing Joe's, so I think that was the ultimate mark of it being a successful explanation of the joy in the Lord. <laughs> oh, it was, uh, it was beautiful. Yeah, very it's nice. Good. Good. That's all we have time for in this episode. So a big thank you to our guests Joe Boyce and John Robinson. You can find out more about them and the organisations they work for by following the links in the description. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your device so you can keep up to date with all our episodes and we'd love to hear what you think of the show. So please do rate and review it in the Apple Store or get in touch with us on Instagram at YouthWorkStateOfMind. That's all for this episode. We'll see you again in two weeks' time for a double header to finish off our first series. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Youth Work State of Mind podcast. It was a Blackburn Diocese Board of Education production. It was produced by Ben Green and David Harris with music from Purple Planet. You can listen to more of their music at purple-planet.com. Special thanks to you, Joe Boyce and John Robinson for joining us on this episode. For more episodes and excellent youth work resources, visit our website bdeducation.org.uk and make sure you follow us on Instagram at YouthWorkStateOfMind to be kept up to date with YouthWork where you are.